0: Our first scripture reading this morning is from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 12. I'll be reading verses 28 to 34. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, Which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Let's look to the Lord and pray for the illumination of his spirit on his word this morning. Father, again we come to you and we ask that you would open our eyes to see and our ears to hear and our hearts to receive what you have prepared for those who love you. Give us ears to hear what your spirit is saying to the church this morning, and Lord, create in us the will that we need to put it into practice, we pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. The second reading is from James, chapter 1, beginning in verse 26, and reading through chapter 2, verse 13. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. This is God's word for his people this morning, and I trust that he will give us ears to hear. We are continuing a series on the book of James this Sunday morning, and we've come to chapter 2 this week. And the various translators and publishers and study Bibles that we so often use have provided us with kind of a hard stop and a new paragraph heading and a great big number, two at the beginning of this chapter, as if in chapters 1, verses 22 to 27, James was writing about the need to be a doer of the word and not a hearer only, but then having somehow exhausted that topic in just a few verses, he took a break, he went out, he had a coffee, and he came back to his lonely writer's room to pick up an entirely new theme, the sin of partiality or personal favoritism or some such thing, whatever the heading over that paragraph in your Bible may say. The thing is, and I've highlighted this numerous times over the years. There is no break between James 1 and James 2. The chapter breaks and the paragraph headings and even the verse numbers do not exist in the manuscripts from which the Bible is taken. So sometimes we're reading along and we get the impression that, oh, here's a change in what the writer was saying. And, and sometimes that could be helpful. helpful, But very often it leads to us sort of making distinctions between one scripture and another in ways that we shouldn't. And again, there is no break in James' letter between chapter 1 and chapter 2. James one twenty six said, If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, notice the parallel. If someone is a hearer of the word, but not a doer. He deceives himself. Well, now James comes along and says, if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, he deceives his heart. He's just giving us one very simple example of what someone who is a hearer of the word, but not a doer of the word would look like. Such a person would hear the exhortation that James gave in chapter 1, verse 19, Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. But having heard that word from the Lord, he would not put it into practice. He would deceive himself. He would deceive his heart by hearing the word of exhortation and thinking that just hearing the word made him religious and then failing to keep his anger in check by bridling his tongue. Now, as we noted before, bridle his tongue in this context is a figure of speech known as synecdoche, in which a part of something is substituted for the whole. And we find this used throughout the scriptures in, in both the Old Testament and the New One obvious example of it would be something which is not only synecdoche, it is also an anthropomorphism, where we talk about the hand of God, reaching out and doing something. And we know that the hand, first of all, it's an anthropomorphism, because God doesn't have physical hands. Try saying that one seven times fast. Um, It's attributing to God a physical characteristic which God, as pure spirit, does not have. God doesn't have a hand, but it's also synecdoche in that it ascribes to the hand of God what is properly the function of all of God. God is not separated. So it's just a way that the writers of the scriptures speak to us to help us understand better. Here, James substitutes a part of the law, bridling the tongue for the whole of God's word. It's a synecdoche that should be understood as James letting one aspect of God's word, God's law, stand for the whole. And in this case, keeping the tongue keeping our anger, especially as that finds expression through the tongue, under control. How do I know that this is what James is doing this passage? Well, the rest of verse 26. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. And James is not saying that this person's religion is worth less, like a car with high mileage or a house in need of upgrades. He uses the word matoyos. This person's religion is fruitless. This person's religion is empty. It's, it's similar to phrases we find in the book of Jude, which was written by another half-brother of Jesus Christ himself. Jude talks about clouds without water or late autumn trees without fruit. Matoyos, fruitless, vain, worthless. Now James will come back to this a little bit later in chapter 2, but having established the negative, that there is a kind of religion that is worthless by way of synecdoche, he will go on in verse 27 to do the same in a positive way. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from a world again, this is just putting forward a part in place of the whole. And I think we need to be very careful to remember that. Because these days there are some who fancy themselves social justice warriors. And they seem to have decided that this is the whole of pure and undefiled religion before God. That as long as we are doing good for the poor and the oppressed nothing else really matters. As long as we are doing good works for those who are less fortunate than ourselves, then our faith, our doctrine, the substance of what we believe as Christians makes very little difference. But that's obviously not true, not even in the immediate context here. James does put this out there as a way of representing good works under the law of God, but he also reminds his readers that we are called to keep ourselves unstained from the world. We are called to be holy. What he's doing is really just contrasting fruitless religion A religion of the head that's bound up with propositional truths, with fruitful religion where those truths actually work themselves out into the way that we live our lives in this world. This is evident in the way that he carries this thought along in chapter 2, verse 1. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory now the lord or the idea of no partiality here is of course tied to his reference to widows and orphans in james day widows and orphans would have been among the poorest of the poor there were no there was no social safety net there was nowhere for people to turn if if they had family they were blessed because hopefully family would take care of them but if they didn't they very often ended up begging on the streets And so his call to help them to reach out and visit widows and orphans in their distress is is a call to do something for people who really aren't in a place to do anything to pay you back. And now he just expands on that. He lets that reference broaden out and get deeper. And he shows us why he made that reference to widows and orphans in the first place. Verse 2, For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, You sit here in a good place, While you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? So a couple of things here. First, show no partiality. And again, I think this needs to be highlighted, because in the historic context, James is making an assumption about who they might be tempted to show partiality to. Speaking about the poor and the rich, he contrasts the way in which someone might treat a man with status, the man in fine clothing, to the way that they would treat a man in shabby clothing. And he makes the point again that poverty and riches are not ultimately defined by the things that we possess. In chapter 1 he wrote, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. We saw back in chapter 1 that James was saying that it doesn't really matter if you have much in this world or little in this world, if you have Christ, if you are in Christ, then you really have all that you need. So the lowly brother can boast in his exaltation if he is in Christ, and the rich can boast even in his humiliation if he loses everything that he has as long as he is in Christ. And here in chapter 2, James goes on to say, listen my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith? This is the point. It's stop looking at externals. Whether you're poor, whether you're rich, and we'll see there are other applications to this as well, doesn't make the difference. What makes the difference is if you are rich toward God. So he calls them to... Understand that God has called those who are poor in this world to be rich towards God and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him. Paul said something similar in 1 Corinthians, where he said, not many wise, not many mighty, not many noble after the flesh have been called to be part of this kingdom that God is building in Christ Jesus. Remember that. It's not about the things that we possess. It's about whether or not we are actually possessed by God himself. But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? So, he's making a point in a particular historic context. If you were to go back, and remember this book is being written just shortly after the time that's described in the Gospels. And if you go back and read through the account of the Gospels with an eye for this materialism, for this prosperity thing, what you'd find is that the rich, in the way that James would be inclined to use this word, were the Sadducees. And the Pharisees and the Herodians and the teachers of the law, the hierarchy of the establishment in that day. And there was a particular heresy, I'll I'll just say it, that they held to, which was, if you are righteous, if you are doing God's will, then God will bless you with material prosperity. Therefore, anybody can take a step back and look at the life of anybody else and say, well, They're prosperous, therefore they must be righteous. And on the other hand, you're not prosperous, you're poor, you're suffering, you're struggling, therefore you must be unrighteous. That was the assumption that was constantly running through the heads of the religious hierarchy that confronted Jesus. They would look at the poor, at the prostitutes and the people that were outside the circle and say, well, no wonder they struggle. They're sinners. How many times do we find in the Gospels where the Pharisees and Sadducees and teachers of the law come to the disciples and say, why does your master eat with sinners? What's wrong with him? We can tell that they're sinners, because we just look at the situation that they find themselves in in life, and it becomes very obvious. So when James asks that question, are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court, he's looking at that same class of people that he and the other disciples and Jesus have been interacting with all through the Gospels. The point here is not, let me say that again, the point here is not that the poor are always good, they aren't, and that the rich are always evil, they are not. And when James makes that point, show no partiality, He's not saying just don't show partiality to the rich, show it instead to the poor. He's saying show no partiality. Exodus 23, verses 2 and 3 said, You shall not fall in with the many to do evil, nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit, siding with the many so as to pervert justice, nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit. If a poor man is bringing an unjust lawsuit... You don't show favoritism to him just because he's poor and the other guy can afford it. You show justice to both. James would have been very familiar with that and also with Leviticus 19, verse 15, where God himself says, you shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. See, we're not supposed to be partial to the rich. James makes that very clear. We're not to be partial to them because they are rich. We are not to be partial to the poor because they are poor. To do either of those things, to look at the externals of people's lives and to make a judgment based on that is to become a judge with evil motivation using James' words from verse 4. So his point is, is very simply, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. No partiality to the rich or to the poor. Do not show partiality based on outward appearances. Outward prosperity is not a measure of the content of someone's faith. There's something more here, too. Show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. So this exhortation to show no partiality is connected to how we hold the faith. This isn't just good general advice about how to live equitably in the world. This is still about hearing and doing the word. We are to hear the word, we are to hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, and we are to do the word without showing partiality in the way that we live our faith. I say this again to highlight the fact that James is not setting works against faith here. It's a common misunderstanding of the book of James to the point that some have even speculated that James and Paul kind of contradict each other because Paul puts such an emphasis on faith, he puts quite an emphasis on works as well, and James puts more of his emphasis on works. But both of them agree that it is faith working itself out in love that is true faith, faith that saves. It's not just good advice about how to live equitably. It's about being a doer of the word that we hold. And I I, want to highlight that, because faith without works is dead. That's true. But there is no truly good work, no work that merits the blessing of God apart from the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. And the reason for that becomes evident in verses 8 and 9. If you really fulfill the royal law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. So understand this. When we talk about partiality, we are talking about a sin But partiality is proven to be sin when it is seen as a transgression against the royal law. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. It's important for us to grasp this because James is not viewing equity and inequity as categories in natural law, not at all. James is viewing this in relation to the royal law, the perfect law, the law of liberty, as he named it in chapter 1, verse 25. And he is naming partiality as sin because partiality violates the command to love our neighbors. A colleague of mine was asked this past year if he had ever done a sermon series on racism. And the question was asked in such a way to make it clear, well, if you haven't, then somehow you've failed. And he had to admit that he had not done a sermon series on racism, but the truth is he has. Every single time that he has stood in the pulpit and preached that as people of God saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, we are called to love our neighbors as ourselves, every time he has preached that, he has preached against racism. See, racism is sin, But it's sin because it's a failure to love our neighbors as ourselves. Jingoism, extreme nationalism is sin. But it's a sin because it's a failure to love our neighbors as ourselves. Even sexism, at least as we might define that biblically. If we have the right definition of it, then it's sin too because it's a failure to love our neighbors as ourselves. Paul talks about this in Galatians When he says, in Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave or free. So there's no racial distinctions, Jew and Gentile, that was a racial thing. There's no economic distinctions to be found in Christ. There is neither slave or free, and there is no male or female. He's not saying that men and women are exactly the same, not at all. But he's saying that that's not a distinction that ought to be made when we are thinking about how we are to love our neighbor as ourselves, to make distinctions among ourselves based on the outward appearance of economic status, as James highlighted here, or of race, or of color, or nationality, or sex, to decide who is worthy to receive and to hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ. That was, after all, the point of who sat where in the assembly. In those days, there were some really good seats close to the lectern where you could hear as the rabbi or the teacher was proclaiming the word and there were some less good seats um, and people fought over the good ones Um, so when someone walked in wearing rich robes and you said sit here sit right here in the place of honor sit where you can hear and you said to the poor person you know what you can just stay out there Stay at the back. If, if there's no room at the back, then go on out there into the fellowship hall. Hopefully you can hear. They were becoming judges with evil intent. They were making decisions about who could worship God and who could hear the word and who could actually hold the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ in their heart. And if we make those distinctions based on external appearance, we become judges with evil thoughts, the English Standard Version says. Now, the word translated thoughts there, that's an accurate translation, but it could have been translated reasonings or motives. We have become judges who reason in an evil way with a wrong motive, and we violate the royal law because we are more concerned with what we may get out of people than we are concerned with loving them and proclaiming the gospel to our neighbors. The thing is, whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. The same could be said of any of the commandments. If you don't violate any of those things, but you take the Lord's name in vain, you have become guilty of the whole law. If you don't covet your neighbor's wife, in the sense of committing adultery, but you do covet his stuff, you have broken the whole law. That's why James can let the one point stand for the whole. The law is not a multi-paned window. Even like these off to the side of the church, there's six different panes in those windows, and conceivably a person could throw a rock and break one pane, but the other five would remain intact. The law is not like that. You don't get to tally up at the end and say, Well, I kept eight out of ten, well, seven and a half out of ten. So surely seven and a half balances the scales, you know on the side of righteousness where to an, that's not how it works you either keep the law of God or you don't whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it it's like one of those huge plate glass picture windows that you see on the front of some houses and a person could throw a brick right through the middle and maybe break the whole thing for the most part or they could toss a rock at the bottom corner and just break you know, a little bit of a hole. But when the window is broken, the window is broken. And when we violate a single command, we are guilty of the whole. Now, in highlighting adultery and murder, James highlights aspects of the law, again, that are specifically connected to the command to love our neighbor as ourself, the royal law. But it really doesn't matter. Whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it, which above all highlights our need, all of our need for the gospel of Jesus Christ, for the faith found in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, because as it is written, Paul writes in Romans chapter 3, there is none righteous, not even one. No one understands no one seeks for God. All have turned aside together. They have become worthless, fruitless. No one does good, not even one. So if you're sitting here and you're trying to go back through your life and think, have I ever, have I ever violated even one commandment in God's law, I'll save you the time. Yes, you have. Yes, I have. Every human being who has ever lived, has broken the law of God. There is none righteous, no, not one. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. In fact, there is no distinction. And that's why James says, don't make distinctions between you know, rich and poor, righteous and unrighteous, good and bad. We're called to not be partial. We're called to not make distinctions because there is no valid distinction that can be made. We are all sinners. We have all fallen. We have all broken God's law. And for us to think in any sense that somehow we are more worthy of the grace of God, well, I may not be, you know, totally righteous, but I'm surely more righteous than somebody for us to make those kinds of distinctions, in doing so we become judges with evil intent, with wrong motives. Because in the end, in terms of our salvation, there are no distinctions whatsoever to be made. We are all sinners, you and I, deserving nothing but God's wrath and indignation. That's just the truth. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Just by grace. By the grace of God. Not through any righteousness of your own, not through any works that we have done, but according to His mercy, He saved us. By grace, you have been saved and raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one can boast." That's true for the rich man. It's true for the poor man. It's true for people of all races, of all sexes, of all economic status. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone. We claim no merit of our own, as if somehow we were more worthy or smarter or whatever, and therefore more deserving of God's favor. It is by grace alone, through faith alone. And so James says, my brothers... Show no partiality. You have no reason to show partiality or to make distinctions as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Rather, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Praise the Lord. Mercy triumphs over judgment. And we have been saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And in that salvation are called to fulfill the royal law. To love our neighbor as ourselves. Let's pray. Father in heaven, let your word run down deep into our spirit. And take root and grow and bear fruit, Father, the fruit of righteousness in Christ Jesus and the fruit that leads to eternal life. That, Father, we may hear the word this morning and having heard it, we may put it into practice, not deceiving ourselves, but walking in your truth, walking in holiness, walking in your love and in mercy and in grace that you have shown us in Christ Jesus, we pray in his name, amen.